Up next on Black Issues Forum, a deeper look at a multi-billion dollar plan to improve public schools and a check on who's getting the COVID vaccine in black communities. Stay with us. Hello and thanks for joining us on Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. More COVID-19 restrictions are in North Carolina are going away, with health officials saying our trends are moving in the right direction. But they're also stressing that this doesn't mean the fight is over. The newest executive order from Governor Roy Cooper will ease several restrictions that have been in place for more than a year. Businesses like stores, salons, museums, restaurants, and gyms can all now increase their indoor and outdoor capacities but they do still have to maintain social distancing and the state's mask mandate is also still in, in addition, place. In addition, effective Friday, we will fully lift the 11 p.m. curfew for on-site alcohol consumption. And finally, the mass gathering limit, which covers other kinds of gatherings that are not laid out in the order, will be increased to 50 indoors and 100 outdoors. These are significant changes, but they can be done safely. And we've said all along that the science and the data would be our guide in this dimmer switch approach. And they show we can do this. North Carolina has done the work to slow the spread of this virus and get people vaccinated. And I'm grateful for the efforts of people across the state. But I emphasize this. This pandemic is not over yet. We're only able to keep this virus in check while we ease restrictions if people act responsibly and follow safety protocols. That means continuing to wear a mask and social distancing. We want to strengthen our economy while keeping people safe. And it's on all of us to make that happen. The last thing we want is to backslide. Spring has brought sunnier days and the continued hope and belief that we will move past this pandemic. Our students are in the classrooms. People are getting vaccinated and our COVID-19 numbers remain promising. But for us to truly turn the corner and leave this pandemic behind, we have to stay strong to the very end. We have to continue keeping ourselves and each other safe. That way we'll be able to move forward once and for all into a stronger and healthier future. Also with me today is our Director of Emergency Management. Those improving metrics are also pushing leaders to bump up the vaccination timeline, with all North Carolinians over 16 <laughs> becoming eligible for the shot by April 7th. And President Biden please, wants to get down. 200 million Americans vaccinated by the end of April. I know it's ambitious, twice our original goal, but no other country in the world has even come close, not even close. Meanwhile, the White House is investing $10 billion to make sure all communities get access. Health centers in North Carolina are receiving about $162 million. The state's efforts to tackle vaccination inequities have received national attention in recent weeks, but the Department of Health and Human Services isn't letting up. And while vaccine equity has been a priority for the department and some progress has been made, we've got a lot more work and more investment is needed. That was Ben Money, the department's deputy secretary for health services. They just launched a new partnership with the NC Counts Coalition. We know that inequities are driven by many factors that are rooted in centuries of systemic racism and structural inequity. 
So healthy together really is, is a down payment on a long-term departmental commitment towards health equity with an initial focus on vaccine equity. One of the things that we know is that communities do know best. They know themselves and, and the need uh, that they have within their local areas. Uh, but they need capacity, they need people, they need funds, they need resources to be able to act on that knowledge. And so we're investing in state, regional, and local community partners led by and serving historically marginalized and Black, Indigenous, people of color communities. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Joshua Senegal. I'd like to welcome Dr. Delon Canterbury, CEO of Geriatrics and a member of Durham's African-American COVID Task Force, plus Dr. Julius Wilder, a gastroenterologist at Duke University. So glad to have both of you here with us, gentlemen. Let me open up with you, Dr. Wilder. Let's just, um, can you answer a few questions just about the vaccine in general? Um, giving us just a brief sense of your medical background, but what does the vaccine do in terms of immunization, protecting a person against spread of COVID, and um, once again, protecting others who are around that person who might have been around others with COVID? Oh, absolutely. The great question. Um, and thank you so much for, for having me here. Um, you know, this vaccine, uh, or the, the vaccines, I should say, that are available what they do is really provide your immune system with a template so that it is prepared to battle and defeat the virus as soon as your body is exposed to it. Um, now, that means your body is still exposed to it, however. Now, some of us may be exposed to it and have no symptoms. Some of us may be exposed to it and have very minor symptoms. Um, but what the vaccine is going to do is to ensure that you do not have any really, really bad outcomes ensure that you don't have any significant hospitalizations and certainly ensure that you have no deaths. And many of us will have, quite frankly, no real infection at all uh, in the setting of receiving the vaccination. The more and more people within our community that we can ensure have that vaccine, then the more difficult it is for the virus to survive because viruses need to be inside people so they can replicate so that they can spread. And if we impede the ability of the virus to get into people by vaccinating us, um, then we impede the ability of the virus to continue to replicate uh, and spread. So once a person gets their two doses, or in the case of Johnson & Johnson, their single dose, and they are protected, how should they govern themselves to make sure that the rest of the family, say they have children, are also protected? Great, great question. So, you know, when we think about this, um, it's important to keep in mind that the vaccine is really working inside of your body, but there are so many other factors that play a role in spread. And just because you have been vaccinated does not mean that you cannot still contribute to the spread of the virus in terms of things like hand washing is still important. It's still important that you ensure that you have to wear your mask. Um, you know, these are other sort of factors that are still coming into play. And so after vaccination, particularly right now when we still have so much of the virus still in our community, although it's improving, we still have a lot of it out there. It is important that even after vaccination that you do a number of important things, as I mentioned, wash your hands, ensure social distancing. You know, children have not been vaccinated yet, um, but they should be wearing their mask and certainly adhering to the issues around social distancing and, and hand washing as well. You know, Dr. Canterbury, thank you so much. Um, Dr. Canterbury, uh, Dr. Wilder has mentioned 
the improvements, the slow and steady improvement uh, of the vaccine um, being distributed to various communities throughout North Carolina. It wasn't so at the very beginning, but I think that uh, what I've heard is that North Carolina is a leader now in its distribution plan. Can you share a little bit about what you know about how black and brown communities are getting this vaccine into their arms and how that compares to the rate of other communities in our state? Yes, absolutely. And thank you again, Deborah, for having me on. Um, it's been a pleasure serving on the African-American COVID Task Force. And in doing so, we are unifying how we can really improve access and some of these barriers that were seen in the initial vaccine rollout. Frankly, what our team does, as, along with others just like Latin 19, we collaborate and partner with health systems as well as community-based organizations, other nonprofits, churches, and faith-based leaders. All this being said, it's being tackled in a unified community front. And with that effort, we are getting vaccines in people's arms um, from random pop-up vaccination clinics at Mount Vernon, which was seen actually yesterday here in Durham, or those like St. Joseph's in the historic Dur Durham community. And in doing this, we are not only instilling trust, but we're bridging those gaps that otherwise have been revealed from an ugly healthcare system. So you talk about the ugly healthcare system and it reminds me of this term hesitation, vaccination hesitation. Yes. And there's been a lot of talk about how African-American communities in particular were not running to get this vaccine because of vaccine hesitation. How much is that still at play right now? You know, you'll always have a little bit of hesitancy, especially where most people's information comes from social media. In the beginning, especially earlier on in August, pre-release of these vaccines, African-American distrust and hesitancy was at a high. We're talking about 80%. Now we're looking at about 27% vaccine hesitancy in African-American communities. And this is actually based on information coming out of the Accord study with Central. They're doing amazing work. And really, when we talk about hesitancy now, it's not so much the traditional, oh, it was Tuskegee or as whatever experience you may have had. It's really coming down to the core essence of being a minority in a broken healthcare system. That is so important. I mean, because because people always go back to Tuskegee and we say, you know, no, what's what is it that's happening right now for black communities that give them this hesitancy? Yes, and especially when it comes to these vaccination clinics, there are long wait lists. There are still the very same access barriers that the African-American COVID Task Force and geriatrics are trying to address ourselves. We still have long waits. Even though these systems are healthcare systems are doing a great job, there are still long waits. So we're talking about a digital divide. There are people who don't have transportation. There are still people who can't get through or can't take off work to make calls. And so what we do with the African-American COVID Task Force is take the effort to take that headache out of the process. We're that liaison between the healthcare systems and the other nonprofits. And so the hesitancy is now really the frustration because now I'm seeing minorities, especially people of color, wanting the vaccine. So it's just a new hot topic. So now I was like, how do I get into the club? How do right. I get it? <laughs> We've moved over from hesitancy to, you know, like you said, frustration. Yes. And, you know, I, I, equity I, issue, right? I, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Dr. Wilder, you know, the, you know, talk a little bit about um, equity 
in a moment, I, I did want to ask another question about, it doesn't really relate to hesitancy, but the fact that everybody has a choice in this and they don't have to get the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And I've heard people say, you know, I'm gonna kind of wait this out, wait for my herd Im immunity to take place because I'm still, I'm just not a vaccine person. Mm -hmm. What would you say to those folks, Dr. Wilder? I would say you're taking a chance. Um, you know, it's going to be a long time before we achieve true herd immunity. Uh, and this vaccine is, I'm sorry, this, this, this infection is very dangerous. There are obviously, there have been well over half a million people who died from this, um, this infection. But there are a number of people who, while they have not died from it, continue to suffer debilitating symptoms. And we're talking six months or more uh, long COVID uh, after they have been infected. And, and quite frankly, I think when we think about COVID-19, you know, one year, three years, five years, 10 years from now, we may be talking about it as a, you know, comorbidity, um, uh, similar to how we discussed, you know, you have a history of hypertension, a history of diabetes. Oh, you have a history of COVID-19. How does that affect your risk of heart attack? How does it affect your risk of diabetes or kidney failure or other, or stroke? Um, and, and so this is something that is a serious public health issue. And on an individual level, we should do everything we can to protect ourselves and our family and our communities. And that, and that honestly, at this point, really involves ensuring that you do those proper things around social distancing, hand washing, those kinds of things, as well as getting vaccinated. And could you take just a few seconds to tell us about your equity work? Well, you know, we are trying to think about how we can bridge the very gaps that we've discussed already around access. You know, vaccine hesitancy has been the main concern, I think, appropriately. Um, but, you know, as we've already discussed, we are recognizing now that the big issue is how do we ensure that we get the vaccine to those communities that have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19? So the same social determinants of health, right, uh, where you live, how you live, what it means to be a person who is black, indigenous, or you know, a person of color, um, the barriers around language, socioeconomic status, you know, those same social factors, like where you work, you know, what kind of work do you do? All of those factors were the main drivers of why this infection has such a disproportionate impact on people of color. But those same factors now are coming into play with respect to our ability to vaccinate that same population. And so trying to address this issue means that we need to be very thoughtful and deliberate in terms of targeting that community uh, so that we can ensure that we are putting the vaccine in the place where it's most needed because that's where we have the most lives lost. Well, definitely those conversations around the social determinants of health and other uh, sources of inequity are going to continue, certainly, on Black Issues Forum. And I thank you both, uh, Dr. Julius Wilder and Dr. DeLon Canterbury, for being with us. Thanks for having me. The impact of COVID-19 on schools and students is well documented, but we also know some students were falling behind before 2020, with the pandemic only making things worse. But the state has a plan to right the ship in the years ahead. Joshua Senegal breaks down decades-long legal fights that brought us here. The Comprehensive Remedial Plan is the latest chapter in the ongoing court case, Leandro versus State. In 1994, school districts in five lower-income counties, Hoke, Halifax, Robison, Vance, and Cumberland, sued the state. They claimed they did not have enough money to give their students an equal education, and they argued the income of a child's family or their community should not determine the quality of their education. A few years later, the state Supreme Court agreed. 
saying every student in the state has the constitutional right to a sound basic education. The case went through several courts and judges before the Supreme Court ruled in 2001 that the state was not providing that right for at-risk students. An independent consultant was brought in to figure out how the state could achieve that goal, with West Ed releasing its final report in October of 2019. A few months later, Superior Court Judge David Lee concluded that the state was still missing the mark, so he ordered them to present plans for changing that. Judge Lee will now review the plan, which says the state and the Board of Education intend to reach their listed goals by 2028. But the cost of making that happen could be another hurdle. To help us break this down, we have Harold Dixon, president of the North Carolina PTA, and Jason Joyner, who works with both the association and lawmakers on matters of education. And Jason, I will start with you first. Can you talk a little bit about the funding for this comprehensive remedial uh, plan? Because uh, $5.6 is a big ticket item. It certainly is, and when you put it into perspective that, you know, while the Leandro case has been going on for well over 25 years, and we're, we often refer to it in means of funding, you know, the General Assembly is the authority that has the ability to do those appropriations, and to date, they've not really been involved in this conversation, uh, as the case has been between the state board and the state. Uh, the plan that the governor actually included in his budget, which was discussed yesterday at the General Assembly, uh, stretches funds out $8 billion over about eight years. Um, his initial uh, funding piece is a little over half a billion dollars in year one. I think we'll have to see where the General Assembly lands in both trying to get adequate resources, um, but also equitable resources to districts across the state. Harold, this has been a long fight, or it's just been a long time since the end of the fight. Why are we just now seeing some, some changes or seeing this kind of a comprehensive plan? I know that there's probably been others, but uh, why has this been so long in coming? I think one of the problems is when you think of funding, if you, if, to the general, to parents in general, um, we will all think that schools are funded equally. It was only until uh, I was made aware of this Leandro report, and I found out how schools are funded across uh, North Carolina. And until people, that awareness is out in the public, and everyone really truly understands how uh, the schools are funded, we're going to have this lag of knowledge. Uh, so to answer your question is, why is it taking so long? People just don't know, people just don't understand. And it took um, Jason and his team to explain it to us at NCPTA on how this is uh, funded, and then we had a better understanding of that. So I'm assuming most parents just do not understand the way schools are funded. I think probably most people, just like you said, don't understand. So Jason, can you help us kind of clarify, you know, how do our schools get funded? Yeah, so it's a mix of, uh, you know, federal, state, and local dollars, but primarily state dollars fund education. It makes up the largest portion of the state budget. Um, where the inequity we see comes in is really at the local level. Um, if you are in a Wake or a Mecklenburg or New Hanover County, um, Carborough, for instance, has a $5,000 additional allotment that they provide for every child, um, where Greene County provides $700 per child. You can understand, what we, even if we start at an equal place with state funding, um, communities of wealth and communities that are uh, more economically uh, mobile have the ability to enhance their children's education uh, in a variety of ways, but specifically with funding and additional funding that uh, regardless of what 
for instance, Greene County wanted to do to achieve those goals, the tax base simply is not there. So this kind of a plan can help offset that and is created so that those uh, districts that have less funds per child um, will get more of this comprehensive plan money? Yeah, so in uh, the remedial plan, it discusses low wealth districts and, and how to particularly intervene there. Um, some of it is not directly funding. Some of it is uh, funding for programs like early childhood education to try to get a head start on things. Um, the other portion is, uh, in addition to the funding, is, is addressing the uh, overall quality of education. Judge Manning, who previously was the judge in this case, said a couple weeks ago um, that you know, it's important to talk about funding, but it also is important to talk about the overall quality. And, and that's certainly what, you know, PTA's perspective is to try to get the same quality of education for every child in North Carolina, regardless of what zip code or school district they're in. And I certainly want to ask about funding um, for charter schools in this uh, comprehensive uh, remedial plan, if that exists or how charter school funding eats into it. Um, but first, uh, Harold, I want to ask you, what are some of those things that this uh, plan is going to provide for? I understand, uh, just like Jason said, it's not just um, funding to the district, but also for uh, support personnel like nurses, special ed. Can you talk about some of those um, resources that this is going to help fund? So one of the key areas is an area that I uh, work in, family engagement, for, for example. Uh, a Wake County or a Mecklenburg County can afford to have a, a department that will focus on engaging families at a high level, meaning connecting families with curriculum, connecting families uh, with the school and, and with what's going on in the classroom. Whereas your, your schools out in the Halifax County area, for example, they could not afford to have not only a department, but one person dedicated to that work. So that's just one example of the inequity, inequities of how this is funded. Um, just like, like what you said, teacher pay. Teachers who work in Mecklenburg, even though we have a state-based fund, but the county can come on top of that and add to that. They can add two or three thousand dollars to a starting teacher salary. Whereas in the uh, eastern part of North Carolina, that may not be the case because of the funding and and the way we are funded in North Carolina. So those are just two examples of how th this is not a level playing field. And then I know that there have been calls for nurses in schools. There are mental health uh, crisis um, interveners who can help, help kids uh, who are coming through the system as well. Um, so talk a little bit about some of those resources that this might provide for. Mm -hmm. So again, here at Mecklenburg, we are blessed that we do, we have a, a coordinated school health department in our school district. And I'm almost certain, uh, Jason, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in those schools who um, are underfunded, like those Eastern North Carolina schools, uh, we don't have those departments that exist. So this, this proposal uh, would help alleviate uh, some of that and, and make it a level playing field for all of our schools. Now, Jason, if I'm off, off base here, correct me, but I'm almost certain that those school districts that Jason pointed out earlier we could have those departments, those school nurses, those social workers, those counselors, whereas those schools uh, in those challenge areas may not be able to afford that. Jason, if you could add a little bit more to that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Harold's absolutely correct, uh, Deb. The, the way 
um, all of those, what we refer to as wraparound services that are provided to the student, um, have, the, there's been a shift in, in where they're funded. And that really goes back to the, the funding formula itself. Um, one thing that I think we can say that most folks agree on now, uh, including the, you know, uh, Senator Michael Lee, chairman of Senate Education, um, the governor, uh, is that the funding formula in North Carolina um, could use uh, reform and that the way that we provide those funds and the flexibility that we allow to the local agencies uh, to be able to determine what's best for them and how to get those wraparound services in place. That's a part of this remedial plan. That's a part of uh, both House and Senate um, plans that have been presented in the past and the governor's plan. And just very quickly, Jason, as we consider um, all of the schools in that pre-K, does this include um, coverage for our charter schools, public charter schools? Yeah, so the, the plan itself uh, includes for, for all public schools. I will say that, you know, in the context of this particular Leandro ruling, if you think back uh, when the Leandro case uh, was initially tried, uh, the governor was a senator. Uh, senator Dan Blue was the Speaker of the House. Um, the internet was not a thing that, that truly existed uh, in a usable way. Um, we've, lots of things have changed. Oh, and, and, and charter schools uh, did not exist. They didn't come into existence until 1997. Um, so there's been a lot of change, um, but the fundamental principle of a sound basic education uh, that started this lawsuit 25 years ago remains today. And, and I see broad commitment to trying to achieve that, sometimes just a little difference in how we get there. Absolutely. Well, Jason Joyner, Harold Dixon, thank you both for being here on Black Issues Forum. And if you would like to reach us on Twitter or Instagram, just use the hashtag NCBlackIssues. You can also find our other episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thank you for watching.